Well, good morning, everyone. And if you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. And Lord willing, I'm going to read from the right passage this week. So 1 Peter chapter 3, turn in your Bibles. Over the past two weeks or so, we have been going through what is called Peter's household codes, the household codes. And if you haven't picked up on it yet over these last eight or nine weeks walking through Peter, Peter is very concerned on how Christians act. Peter is very concerned about the conduct of those who follow Christ. He is concerned for their holiness, and he is concerned about their response to suffering and to persecution so that they will endure. That's what this book is about. It is about our endurance and perseverance through suffering and persecution. Not just that we would scathe by, but that we would endure in holiness by the grace of God. The word conduct is used in Peter, 1 Peter, five times. We've already heard it three times in chapter 1, and the other two times are in our passage this morning. Peter tells us that our good conduct is a major part of our evangelism. It shows who we follow, that we are not like the world, that we are different, we have been redeemed, we have been ransomed and set apart to an imperishable inheritance. And this morning we are going to see once again how our good conduct and respect is used in evangelism in our own homes. In our own homes. If we have an unbelieving spouse. Particularly wives who have unbelieving husbands. The good conduct we have seen comes through submission. The good conduct and respect that we have seen over the past two weeks comes by subjecting ourselves underneath the authority that God has placed over us. And as we have prayed this morning, we need humility once again and the gospel perspective that we saw last week that is in Christ, who is our example as submission and suffering, and yet he did not sin by his wounds, you were healed as we come now to our third household code. So let's look to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll start reading in verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respect and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external by the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight, is very precious. 
For this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. So what could go wrong with a man standing in front of you and preaching on the topic of wives submitting to their husbands in 2021? Oh, you laugh and giggle awkwardly now. But imagine how I feel. No, I'm just kidding. This household code is not popular. It's not popular. However, we, this is the one thing about expository preaching. You can't really skip over passages like this. You can't ignore its importance. It cannot be marginalized. It cannot be overlooked just because we live in the 21st century, as if some things apply and some things do not. What's at stake here, gender, sexuality, marriage, gender roles, and even human flourishing, Not just morality is at stake, but the authority of the Bible is at stake. This is the beginning of the slippery slope for several, for many. When we begin to understand the scripture as a whole, the overwhelming theme in every story, every psalm, every wisdom literature, and even the Gospels, and in the history of the Scriptures, in the Gospels as well, is trust. Trusting, faith, belief in the promises of God, which are based in His character, in His revealed Word. Hebrews 11, the chapter on faith, is so powerful Because by faith, they believed, they trusted, they trusted God's word, and they obeyed. Do we not experience the same temptation to trust or not to trust God's word every day? Every temptation to sin comes down to trusting God. Can his word be trusted? Is his word sufficient? Is his word inerrant and inspired? No matter what's at play, submission in the hard places, submission to government, slaves, submission to their masters, wives, submitting to their husbands, no matter what's at play, 
no matter how countercultural the Bible seems. Wives, be subject to your husbands. That's countercultural. It's always good for us to look at God's word to submit our hearts and our lives too. Our God is our good Father. And what he has commanded to us, although may be difficult at times, is never bad for us. Nor is it just morally neutral, but it is always good. If that is true, if all of that is true, then what God says about manhood and what God has said about womanhood, husbands, and wives, is then not a killjoy. God is not trying to rob us of something, deprive us of independence or freedom, but rather we know he knows how deep and how full life can be when these things are lived out according to his good purposes. So to understand what's going on here, we do this sometimes often, but I'm going to do it again today as we go all the way back to the beginning. To understand what's going on here, we must look all the way back to the beginning. So if you want to, you can flip in your Bibles and you can follow me to Genesis chapter 1. Told you, all the way to the beginning. Maybe table of contents would be all the way to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1 begins the account of creation. Genesis chapter 1 is this unique perspective of God himself creating every part of the universe. In fact, we see the Trinity in Genesis chapter 1. Of God himself creating every part of the universe. That he spoke into existence all that there is. He speaks into darkness and the void, and, and light shines brightly. He speaks from nothing, and there are colors. Look behind you and look at the colors of that tree. I mean it. Look behind you. Look at that tree through the window. Everyone's going to look at Karen and, and Mr. Bill. But look at that tree. God speaks colors, shapes. Forms, the laws of nature, gravity, all the heavens and, and all the earth are made, the waters, the plants, the animals, all that has come into existence by his word alone. But everything would be incomplete without what comes next. Verse 26, God created man in his own image. And he created man in his own image to rule over his creation. Being made in the image of God makes him his representative authority on earth to advance his purposes here in this world to have dominion over the earth and to be fruitful and multiply. This means that man has the authority to cultivate the earth for the purposes of human creation to the creator's glory. 
And then in verse 27, God created man in his own image, and he created them distinctly different from the rest of creation. Man in his own image, male and female. It's worded like this because mankind was created male and female. Our maleness, if that's a word, and your femaleness, again, if that's a word, goes far beyond than just sexual reproductive parts. But it goes deep. God has created us distinctly different, biologically, mentally, DNA, differently. Our sexuality is celebrated and highlighted right here. The meaning of male and female, we will see throughout the Bible, will be continued to be defined. But let's not miss and celebrate our created differences as male and female. In this distinction, God created man under divine blessing. When I use man there, I'm meaning male and female, human race, under divine blessing. Under his divine blessing. God blessed them, and he separated them from all the rest of creation because we have the representative image of God. His authority for flourishing, he has given to us for procreation and to leave a mark on this world for his glory. The foundation of what is a man and a woman, marriage and sexuality, brothers and sisters, are not built out of or determined by culture or society, and they cannot be changed by culture or society or how someone feels because they've been distorted by the fall, but it's been foundationally from the glorious and beautiful design of a good creator, Yahweh God. Genesis 2 then brings us to the creation story on the ground. Creation story, Genesis 1 is in the air. This is bringing us to the ground with all the details. In verses 15 and 17, we see how God had created man. This time it's just Adam at this point, right? He's created man, and he put him in the garden, and he tells him to work the garden, Adam, and keep it, right? There's the creation mandate already going to Adam. He's already working out the purposes in the garden. He's naming the animals. But in verse 18, there was something missing. Something vital was missing. And guess what? Adam didn't even know it. Right? No surprise. We're oblivious. And God said, it is not good for man to be alone. And so he gave him a suitable, fit helper after Adam realized that among the animals, there was no other suitable helper for him. Pets are great. Wives are better. Best. How about that? He gave him Eve. 
So from Adam's flesh, a rib from his side, God created woman. It is at this point, once again, we see where God takes something that is not good, something that's not right, and he makes it very good. For man to be left alone in a world created and ruled by God who is loved was just unthinkable for God. He gives man a suitable woman, a suitable helper. What a rich terminology that is. I think the ESV says a a, a fit helper or something like that. Someone who's fitting for them. But what a great word, what a great phrase to help us understand that, that deep, intimate relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. Helper does not mean inferior. Both men and women are created in the image of God, nor does it mean dependent or slave. Matthew Henry, centuries ago, commented on this passage saying, the woman was not made out of the head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and to and near his heart to be beloved. The woman was created for man to complement and support and strengthen the man in their representative authority over the earth. The man needed a companion like himself, but not like himself. He was not given bros. He was not given multiple women. He was given a woman to become a one flesh union. Marriage is God's design, which he instituted, which he oversaw in the first marriage between Adam and Eve. It was God's good design between one man and one woman, and as possible within this design where children are born and raised for continual dominion over the earth. This is what Peter is saying here in our text this morning to wives, that this is where culture has gone nuts in rejecting God's good design. The biblical worldview is made fun of with caricatures of women chained in houses with no rights, serving barbaric men, abusing women, and certainly we know that there is enough evidence out there that that truly can happen and has happened, unfortunately. But that has come from sin. And in Genesis chapter 3, this is where sin comes in. Adam and Eve had once command, were commanded by God to, to eat of all the garden, to use all of the garden except for this one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Everything was open for them to consume and to to enjoy. So this command was not a burden. It was a command to trust. You see that? It was a command to trust the Lord and then to enjoy everything else. And then the devil, in the form of a serpent, came to Eve and tells the same lie that we so often hear ourselves. Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden. You will surely die. 
God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be open and you will be just like him, just like God, knowing good and evil. So here it is, right? The same lies today. God doesn't want you to be like him, even though he had created you in his image. He doesn't want you to be happy because he's holding things from you. Cast off that image bearing and be your own image. It's the same lie that we buy into. It's the same lie that we we think that we are smarter, that that our ways are better. It's the lie that, that, that gives birth to all sin, that God can't be trusted, but my desires are always trustworthy. Eve buys the lie with her husband standing right there. And Adam is not off the hook here. Remember, he is the head in this relationship, and he is ultimately responsible. She eats the fruit, and he hands it over to his dopey husband, who eats with no reservation, and the consequences have been felt ever since. The whole world then is fractured, including their marriage. What once was beautiful, what once was in sync and in harmony without shame is now fractured. In Genesis 3, verse 15, God speaks to the servant and he gives the first messianic prophecy that through the seed of the woman, he would crush the work of evil. Christ. And through him, Through him, then, our relationships, even in our marriage relationships, will be restored. Verse 16, to the woman, that you will experience pain in childbirth. Also saying, your desire for your husband, and he shall rule over you. This means that the desire of the woman will be to rebel or to resist headship. That's what desire means. So, so your desire shall be, you would be against your husband. And the husband, verse 17 and 18, Adam's curse would be the toil of the ground. Work has become exponentially more difficult. The earth has become that much more difficult to subdue because now there are thorns and thistles that will grow in the midst of the fruit or even instead of the fruit. And he's not speaking just about work and careers and in our jobs and that kind of work, but he's also speaking about the difficulty of leading families. Men are tempted then to be passive like Adam was passive and to abdicate his role as head of the household of his wife. Or the temptation of the man would be to press her hard into submission by domineering and using his strength in sinful ways. So what once was in complete harmony and beautiful now has rebellion and abdication and abuse. The design of distinctive roles in marriage, though, has not changed since Genesis 2. Since the fall, marriage is difficult because of the curse of sin. Yes. But yet, throughout the marriage, 
scripture, we see that wherever marriage is outside of God's design, it always goes bad. Polygamy, adultery, homosexuality, fornication, prostitution, gender confusion, gender role confusion, all causes pain and hurt and poverty and death and then judgment. In the Song of Solomon, we hear, we hear the shalom of God in marriage, like it's being restored, almost like it was back in Genesis 2, which is displaying to us the, the restoration that the gospel brings to us and to our marriage relationships. In the end, we see God's good design in creation of male headship and female helper within marriage and within the marriage mandate to procreate and to subdue the earth. But the fall makes this difficult. The relationship between a husband and wife is meant to be complementarian, to complement one another, which means that they are both equal and beautiful in significance in the eyes of God. There is not one gender that is greater than another. God yet, though, has created man and woman different. He has created us differently to then fulfill distinct roles as head and helper. When headship and helper is lived out in the marriage relationship, there is joy, satisfaction, peace, safety, and human flourishing. Biblical male headship in the marriage is not some evil, abusive, patriarchal, oppressive system to women, but it began in heaven and came through creation as a pathway for human flourishing. All those other things was created by sin. I know that was a lot, but that gives us an idea, a good foundation of what Peter is saying to us about biblical womanhood and biblical manhood. So what we see here then in 1 Peter 1, or 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7, is what God has designed in creation in our gender roles. Paul also makes the same arguments as we have just had from Genesis. That within marriage, these gender roles exist not because of sin, as some would say. Not because of sin or some kind of societal norms or cultural norms, but rather God has established man as head over his wife in creation. 1 Corinthians 11. 6 through 10, Ephesians 5, 22 through 25. However, Peter doesn't need to make that case here. He doesn't make that, that case and that uh, point here because the point here is for wives to endure and that by their good conduct, they can hope in winning their unbelieving husbands to the Lord. How glorious is that? That's something that God had built even within creation itself could be used to take the gospel to the lost. For a wife, 
God calls her to live out this type of Christian submission specifically toward her own husband and no other. It is her voluntary deference to her husband to lead her family, to lead her, for her husband to lead her and the family. It's a yielding to him to lead. Whenever the scriptures address marriage, it always starts with the wife. It always starts with the wife. Even though the man has ultimate responsibility before God and how he is to lead and care for his family, it always starts with the wife. And the reason is because no man could ever lead a woman who will not submit. He cannot lead if she won't follow, if she is stepping outside and taking his place to take the initiative role, then he will not. He will be like Adam, sitting there like a schlub eating apples or Cheetos. If she is fault-finding, unsatisfiable, demanding, disrespectful, and dishonoring, then she is like what the Proverbs call a continual dripping on a rainy day. How then will a sinful man respond to living under a leaky roof in a sinful way? This is why Peter says the unbelieving husband will never be one if he's always berated even with the gospel. But to let your conduct win them to have opportunities to share the gospel with them. Listen, I, I know us men have a lot of faults, but there is a gentle and kind way to correctly love your husband and to correct your husband that does not demean him or take away his God-given role. Submitting, therefore, is taking your husband let, let, is letting your husband take the initiative in leading and then helping and supporting and encouraging him in his leadership. Once again, oh, how the, the gospel is on display to unbelieving neighbors and unbelieving friends and, and co-workers and, and family members and to if there is an unbelieving husband. Some people who will never step inside of the church and hear the gospel proclaimed from a, from a pulpit will see the gospel in your submission to your husband's headship. Submission does not mean agreeing on everything. Whew. Wives, your counsel is an added value to your husband. And a wise husband will seek his wife's input. Submission does not mean leaving your brain at the altar. Men, we're finite. No matter how we project ourselves in our bravado and confidence, we do not know everything. We cannot see everything. And the man or the husband who thinks so is a fool. We need, wives, your input. We need your perspective. 
that we could never see. I need my wife's nurturing and compassion to rein me back because four daughters don't do so well with my we need your input and good leaders take advice from good helpers some of us for some of us our wives are actually smarter and more gifted than us in many ways and we would be fools not to use those giftedness those gifts in wise ways for our marriage and for our family Admit it. Husbands ask for help, but lead. Submission does not mean you do not try to influence your husband to take the lead and to make the right decision. Submission also is not putting the will of your husband before the will of Christ. Submission does not mean allowing them to lead you into sin. We talked about these are the exceptions. We talked about that over the last two weeks. We are not called to submit even into sin. Submission does not mean getting all your spiritual strength from your husband. Primarily, it should be through his leadership. But remember, Christ is your savior. And husbands are to point our wives to Christ as we wash them with the water of the word of God. Submission does not mean living or acting in fear to your husband, rather to fear Christ alone. Submission does not mean conforming to the cultural stereotypes of what a good wife is, but to the Bible's view of biblical womanhood. Sorry, Oprah. I don't know, is she even a thing anymore? I don't know. Sisters, if you are not married, then here's some wisdom. Only date and then marry a man who is worthy to submit to. Only date and marry a man who is worthy to submit to. I didn't say perfect. But a man who knows Christ is their authority. And if Christ is their authority, then they humbly follow him. That is someone worthy to submit to. Peter tells us what respectful and pure conduct looks like. In verses 3 and 4, he says, Do not let your adornment be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle, quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Adorning is a verb, and it means to, to make beautiful, to make attractive it's to draw attention to by those by those adorning 
And what Peter is bringing up here is the temptation of women to adorn themselves in such a way that draws the kind of attention that comes with external looks. And with the, the, uh, the, the emotion and the physical giving into this type of adorning that comes at the expense of their own hearts. Now this does not mean that Peter is saying women should not wear their hair nicely or shouldn't wear any jewelry or dress up. It is a calling to be modest in your outward adornment where what is more attractive is not external, but what's in the hidden person of the heart, where real beauty lies. What defines us is not what's on the outside, not what we wear, but what's inside. And what transforms the heart, the hidden person of the heart, is the word of God to be godly and loving and compassionate and forgiving and kind, righteous, serving and holy. In particular, he says, with a gentle and quiet spirit. All qualities, as he says, that are of a imperishable beauty. External beauty fades, and it fails. But real beauty, my sisters, is in what the Lord does in you over years and years to which a godly husband becomes more and more attracted to, to the loveliness of the inner, of the hidden parts of the heart. And what's much more than that is very precious in the sight of God. Precious, meaning worthy. It's very sad to see how many young girls and women have been trapped into the endless cycles of pursuing external beauty with perishable things. Believing that these things are what's going to satisfy them in the hearts, but it's not. What gives peace and joy, sisters, is pleasing the Lord. To adorn yourself with an imperishable beauty that is very precious in God's sight. Could there be anything more worthy for you to pursue than that? The whole goal in submission, whether you have a believing husband or not, who we hope will be one to Christ, is for holiness and to be hopeful. Verse 5 and 6, we see that. It's to be holy and to be hopeful. In verse 5, he, he gives us example. He says, these holy women, which I think he's referring to Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and, and Leah, who all hoped in God and who adorned themselves by submitting themselves to their, to their husbands. And then in verse 6, Sarah, Abraham's wife, is brought up specifically as this example to follow. 
Now, Sarah, as we know, if, if you know in, uh, from, from Genesis and from the scriptures, is that she was, when she was young, she was externally, she was beautiful, right? You remember the whole goofy story with Egypt? Man, that was weird. But yeah, right? Uh, but, but she was also real. And she was not perfect, but her faith and life was precious and beautiful. And this is why Peter brings her up as an example. Now, culture is always reminding us that, that this kind of view of women, that they are to be subject to their husbands is, and to reject this particular role, is this is a setback for women. But Peter is saying, no, 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 look at Sarah. Look at Sarah. Sarah told Abraham like it was. Sarah submitted, but she also told Abraham like it was a few times. Now, in, chapter, in verse 6, is referring back to Genesis 18. When Sarah calls Abraham Lord, not God, but Lord, leader, head. Now, what's really funny about the context of Genesis 18 and where she calls him Lord is, is when uh, uh, in Genesis 18, where the Lord is telling Abraham uh, in his old age that he and Sarah would have a son. Right? This is, I mean, this is their old you know, they're, what, in their 90s or something like that, or maybe they're in their 70s at this point, and they're, 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 they're older now, and, and at that point, you're not having children, right? Biologically, it's done. And Sarah was listening in behind the tent to the Lord telling Abraham this, and as she heard the Lord say that you're going to have a child, she laughs to herself. And this is what she says to herself, verse 12. After I am worn out, and my Lord is old? And then the Lord in the same, in that passage in chapter 18, the Lord asks Abraham, why is Sarah laughing? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? I find this passage very interesting as it's being used. Because I think for a majority of women today, even Christian women as well, at best, they would just laugh at passages like this. That this is just a laughable thing. Like Sarah did, just laughed. Just, just, just laughed at, at, at God's word. I was doing some studying this week in a, in a coffee shop, and I thought to myself, man, if I read this passage out loud, I would be kicked out of here. As being old-fashioned, misogynist, bigot, dot, dot, dot. You're out of here, sucker. Don't bring that hate speech in here. It's laughable. It's scary. Unthinkable to give yourself to this type of pattern of life, to submit yourself under the headship of your husband. However, when you are in a time of need in this living out this pattern, will the Lord not meet you? Will the Lord not keep his word to those who entrust themselves to it? Has he not caused you to be born again to a living hope? And is, is he not keeping safe an inheritance that is imperishable? Sisters, you can lean into what the Lord has called you to do. You can press into an imperishable beauty that is precious and more valuable in his sight than anything else. And like what we read earlier in Proverbs 31, an excellent wife whom can find.
She is far more precious than jewels. In verse 25, in the same chapter, Proverbs 31 says, Strength and dignity are her clothing. Strength is trusting in the Lord and following him in his word. And the dignity that comes from following him and the confidence of following the Lord. That's womanhood. That's biblical womanhood. The rest of verse 25, I think, is interesting as well. Not only does he say strength and, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Sarah laughed in distrust, didn't she? But her laughter as she did, uh, the laughter as she, as she began to trust the Lord was what? Turned into joyous laughter. The gospel, redemption in Christ, removes the distortions of the curse so that your role as a wife will be displayed in the imperishable beauty as your role to joyfully submit to your husband's headship. Now it's your turn, men. Which includes me. Look at verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, I know he doesn't say as much here to husbands as he did to the wives. But verse 7 is a very weighty verse. It is not light. It's very weighty, and it must be taken seriously because Peter introduces a very stern and strong warning so that your prayers may not be hindered. That's no joke. That's no laughable matter. That's not something to put on the, the, the back burner. How we treat our wives is as serious as our prayers. Honestly, if I can speak directly to you men as a man, I think Peter is saying, act like men. Act like the greatest example of manhood we have, Jesus Christ. Biblical manhood is not just important to men and to boys, and, but it is important for all of us because we are all affected by men. We are raised by them. You may be one. Hopefully to be one one day, grow up into a man. Maybe you're married to one or hopeful to be married to one one day. Biblical manhood affects all of us. And at the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of kind-hearted responsibility to lead, to provide, and to protect women in ways that is appropriate to our differing relationships. To lovingly lead, to provide, and to protect is what it means to live with your wives in an understanding way and to show honor to them. Just because God has given headship to men and women are to submit 
and that women are the weaker vessels, which means generally speaking, this is of the, the physical nature, that doesn't mean that men get to exert dominance or abuse over them. That is from sin. That is from Genesis 3 of the, of the fall. And every man must recognize these situations within us. But in Christ, the gospel men leads us into, leads you and into mature biblical masculinity. We are under authority. Our authority that we have been given has been derived from Christ, as God, as our, our creator. We are commanded as men, yes, to subdue the earth, to make the rest of the earth look like the garden. We build, we create, we cultivate, we nourish, we maintain, we improve, we strengthen. We want more power, right? We want big trucks, we want diesels, we want man stuff. Because we want to build, we want to do, we want to go. We're created that way. You're created to be that way. God put that in you. But not just in a job or not just in a career. But God has uh, ordained in you this great work, this great adventure, this great building project and journey that you are designed to do is to be cultivating and subduing is in your family, in your wives, and with your children. Men who say they are bored have no clue what this means who have been titillated by the world to pursue very lesser pursuits. If you know everything about sports and you know nothing about your children or your wife, then you have abdicated your role and you're eating that apple like a sheep being led to the slaughter. But we've been called, brothers and sisters, to the greatest adventure the greatest journey, the greatest work that you can do, men, is to pursue and press into your families, into your wives, into your children. Yeah, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you that time alone. It's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you whatever. But in the end, families, your wives, your children, your boys, your little boys need you. Your daughters need you. Mature masculinity does not demand to be served or demand his wife to submit. But in the strength God has created in them, they are to serve and sacrifice for the good of their family and their wives. Mature masculinity does not assume the authority of Christ over women, but advocates and displays the gospel for their joy. Mature masculinity doesn't presume a superiority, but mobilizes his strength along with her strength for the joy of others. Mature masculinity doesn't have to initiate every action. However, they 
they, have the, they feel the responsibility to provide a pattern of taking the initiative. Mature masculinity accepts the burden of the final say in disagreements, but does not presume to use such authority in every instance. Mature masculinity expresses leadership in romantic relations by communicating an aura of strong and tender pursuit of his wife and protecting the marriage bed. Mature masculinity expresses itself in family by taking the initiative and disciplining the children when the family standards have been broken. Mature masculinity recognizes that the call to leadership is a call to repentance and to humility and to great risk-taking. Brothers, did you catch how much maturity means living and understanding and honoring rights and treating them as co-heirs with you in the grace of God? unmarried brothers here this morning. The gauntlet was just laid down. Mature in Christ. Put away worldly and childish things and grow up in Christ. Husbands, have we allowed the garden that we have been told to cultivate to become taken over with weeds? Have we put our wives into unfair positions of having to step into spaces and roles that we are supposed to lead in? Brothers, I pray that you will take serious our message this morning. Your role in your marriage to love and to lead and to initiate with your wife. Show your wife the gospel by repenting to her for the ways and places where you have failed. Ask for forgiveness. And then ask for loving help and encouragement in the places you're failing. Sisters, married or unmarried, can you see how you would flourish physically and spiritually under such headship? I think you can. I think we understand that this is good for us. Wives, future wives, God is not robbing you of your personality or your independence. Instead, what we see is our loving Heavenly Father who has designed womanhood and marriage to be for your joy and for human flourishing. God knows what's best for us, and his way of submission and headship is the path to joy. Ladies, I know you need a lot of grace because knowing our failures as men, this is hard to do. But it is grace that drives us as beloved children of God. Brothers, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Live with them in an understanding way and honor them as co-heirs in Christ. You see what all we need, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. Because it's only in the gospel we restore our relationship to each other. We need grace in our relationships. Grace to give one another. And it's how you pursue biblical femininity 
and how we men, we pursue biblical masculinity. Amen?